Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. And let's just get this straight for a minute, because I think it's important to take a step back. What the Prime Minister is coming to this House to tell us today is that his flagship achievement, the deal he told us was a triumph, the deal he said, as I said, that was oven ready, the deal on which he fought and won the general election is now contradictory and ambiguous. Madam Deputy Speaker, what incompetence. What failure of government, governance. And, and Madam, De- Madam Deputy Speaker, how dare he try and blame everyone else? Can I say to the Prime Minister, this time he can't blame the right honourable member for Maidenhead. He can't blame John Major. He can't blame the judges. He can't blame the civil servants. He can't sack the Cabinet Secretary again. There's only one person responsible for it, and that's him. This is his deal. It's his mess. It's his failure. For the first time in his life, it's time to take responsibility. It's time to fess up. Either he wasn't straight with the country about the deal in the first place, or he didn't understand it. Hello, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linna, and it is Tuesday, September the 15th, and that clip you just heard was Labour's Ed Miliband taking on Boris Johnson in the House of Commons yesterday during the second reading of Johnson's proposed Internal Markets Bill, a bill which, if it becomes law, is going to undermine aspects of the withdrawal agreement struck between the EU and the UK last year and is in breach of international law. Pat Leahy, I'm going to talk about the rest of the debate and last night's vote in a minute, but first of all, that was uh, quite the performance by Labour former leader, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I saw somebody commenting on Twitter about Boris's plight, saying, imagine surviving COVID only to get murdered by a milliband. And I suppose there's something in that. You know, I think on the, the substance of the issue, you would have to say there are probably some legitimate questions that the British government has about the possibility uh, under the agreement that it made with the EU of what powers that it would give uh, to, to the EU in the event of, uh, of of no deal, albeit that that is the agreement that the British government made with the EU less than a year ago. But you can see how that might give rise to some unease um, amongst unionists, but also uh, uh, amongst conservatives. But I thought Miliband's criticism of the UK government's position was in several respects pretty much on... Uh, on the money. For me, the sharpest one was when he pointed out that for all the complaining that Boris Johnson was doing uh, about the possibility that the EU would impose a food blockade, which is a preposterous notion in and of uh, it's, uh, itself so characterised, but um, even if you took that at face value, there wasn't a single line in the bill that gave the UK government power to uh, to set that aside. And he invited Johnson, if there was, to point it out to him. And he repeatedly says, I will, I'll give way, I'll give way to, uh, uh, to the Prime Minister if he can point out to me 
where it is in the bill that this is this is addressed and I think kind of quite humiliatingly for the Prime Minister, I'd be interested to hear what James has to say about this, but, you know, Boris Johnson is hardly somebody who is ever stuck for words, but he simply kind of sat on his tail end and allowed Miliband to continue. And you mentioned James there. I'm delighted to say we are joined by James Forsyth, who's political editor of The Spectator. James, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good to be on. We'll get into the nitty gritty of, you know, this bill's passage or perhaps uh, failure of passage through the House of Commons and indeed the House of Lords might perhaps more importantly over the coming weeks. But first of all, what do you make of Pat said? It was a pretty, it was a pretty humiliating outing for Boris Johnson, wasn't it? I, I think in government, there is a kind of recognition that they, they have started off on from completely the wrong place because of Brandon Lewis's declaration, which was in the official government script. But this was a specific and limited breach of international law. Uh, it, it meant there was kind of no fig leaf for people to hide behind. And I think also this came out of a kind of clear blue sky. The government hadn't kind of started preparing an argument about whether or not the, the EU was behaving in good faith or not. And so I think the government has found itself in, in a very difficult position because of the way, not just because of what it is trying to do, but because of the way it framed what it was trying to do. Now, I, I think in a way, what we saw yesterday was that you know, this is difficult for the government because Boris Johnson hailed this deal as a fantastic deal. He said he'd you know, fixed lots of the problems in Mrs May's deal. And now he's saying, ah, oh, there are actually these problems that are arising. That is obviously politically difficult for him. And it's also politically difficult because they haven't kind of prepared the arguments that they needed to make for these changes. I think the big question now is this is I think the only way to, to resolve this is through a deal. You know, if you've got a, a, a zero tariff, zero quota deal between the UK and the EU, lots of these problems would go away. And I think that is the interesting question now, is whether between now and the end of the year, you can get that deal. Pat, I was listening to the BBC's Laura Kunzberg uh, on their um, newscast podcast late last night, and she was saying there was a bit of talk around Westminster that she was hearing people saying that the, the very extremity of the position which had been outlined over the last week or so actually meant that Boris Johnson is preparing to make some compromises over the next few weeks and to do a deal with the EU. I think that's possible. It certainly seems to me that it is overwhelmingly in the UK government's interests to get a deal. Also overwhelmingly in the Irish government's and I suppose to a lesser extent in the EU's interests uh, to to get a deal. But looking at the looking at the British government, you know, go- governments, I made this point at the column of the weekend, governments rarely inflict economic pain on their voters if they can avoid it. And that's for the good reason that voters tend to take a dim view of that at the uh, at the ballot box. Now, certainly Boris Johnson is at the beginning of a five-year term. He's got a, a whopping majority and he has a freedom of movement in political and parliamentary terms that he, he didn't have last year and certainly his predecessor, Theresa May, uh, didn't have, which ultimately I think brought her downfall. But at the same time, I find it difficult to see, and I'd be interested to hear what James has to say about this, but I find it difficult to see uh, Johnson's administration electing for a no deal. It may be that that is where we end up, but I I, I find it difficult to believe that that is, uh, 
that that is the strategy. And if Johnson is intent on making a deal, then he he will have to climb down on at least some of this stuff. But as we saw last year, he has a certain genius in a, you know performing such a an outrageous political u-turn and making uh, uh, and making a virtue of it and presenting it as a great victory when i think a more uh, a more accurate reading of it might be uh, a, a glorious retreat but we wait and see. I'd be interested to hear James' take on it as to whether it, it, it may well be the strategy of at least some parts of the British government to seek, uh, to, to actually seek a no deal. And I know that some, you know, parts of the Irish government who would previously have prided themselves with a reasonably good read on whatever a British government uh, is at... Some of those people that I've spoken to confess that, you know, the people that they are speaking to in Whitehall are really unsure of the ultimate intentions of number 10. James, I'll put that question to you. What do you think the intentions are then? Well, I think it's difficult to know for sure, because I think only about four people know what the actual desired end result is. And I remember having a conversation with one of those four people. And I was saying, so do you want a deal or not want a deal? And they said, well, the first rule of getting a deal is not wanting a deal. And and it's it's like one of those kind of logic exercises you're forced to do kind of age 11, which is you come to a point in the road and there's someone who always lies. And you ask them, should I, what question do you, you ask them, should I go right or left? And what's the answer? And that tells you which way to go. There's so many levels of bluff and counter bluff. I think it's quite hard to be certain. The what I think is true is, it, and again, I think you could read Boris Johnson's Daily Telegraph article on Saturday in two ways. One is you could read it as a kind of radical ramping up of the rhetoric, talk of kind of the EU blockading Britain and all this stuff. Or you could read it as setting up an easy victory in that if the EU were to list the UK as a third country for SPS purposes, you could then declare that the blockade has been lifted and that threat has been removed. So I I think it's very hard to know for certain which way this is going to go. I I do think, though, that when you look at the challenges uh, posed by coronavirus, the difficulties that the testing regime is having in the UK at the moment... It does seem that to put it layering a no deal Brexit at the end of the year on top of that would be putting the British administrative state, which Johnson has trenchant criticisms of, under huge strain. You see, I don't know who you were talking to in the government there, um, James, but just a, a brief follow up question. You know, this sort of high end theoretical game theory or madman theory or playing chicken at a very high level or however it's characterized. Um, I'm not sure how impressive the game theorists are in the British government, given by the way that they handled this particular part of the game over the last seven days. I think the problem with this one is that the government initial positioning was wrong. If you listen to, I mean, let, let's leave aside the kind of the, the, the morality and the legality. If you listen to what Boris Johnson, the arguments Boris Johnson and Michael Gove were making in the debate yesterday, they were very different from the initial arguments made by the UK government. The kind of Boris Johnson argument yesterday where these were reserve powers that he hoped never to have to use, but he needed in case the European Union would not negotiate in good faith. And that made it feel very different 
from the initial declaration of kind of, well, we're going to break international law, but so what? Pat, you wanted to make a point there. What I was going to say is that there is an attendant danger in if the EU, UK is pursuing this strategy, there's an attendant danger that won't be apparent amongst the Irish responses to it. But uh, people in the Irish government who are in contact with European networks are telling me this, and that is that the, there's an awful lot of the EU which is, you know, really only marginally engaged in the great Brexit debate. Now, you know, there was a call last week between Angela Merkel and Michal Martin and a number of other EU leaders in which I'm told that the line that Angela Merkel was taking was very conciliatory, very emollient, very uh, very much focused on a deal, saying to people, you know, yes, 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 let's, you know, but let's not get too carried away with what's going on in London. Let's bear in mind that the ultimate prize is uh, is a deal. But Albeit that that is, I think, the direction that will come out of Berlin, there are other parts of the German government and there are other uh, EU governments that are, you know, they really want to get on with other things apart from Brexit. And they're simply not engaged in, you know, Brexit to the same degree that some of the countries more directly affected are. And while Everybody would like to see the EU reach a deal with the UK. For them and for much of the EU, uh, if it doesn't reach a deal, it doesn't have any direct effect on their domestic politics, which is what most of them care about. And there are other parts of the EU establishment and, you know, one hears these noises coming out of uh, out of out of Paris, particularly, that says, no, let them go, let them experience a no deal, um, and it will be so economically damaging for them that, uh, you know, they will come back and make a deal within a couple of months. I think that view has, uh, has always been there, but combined with the growing impatience and the sort of bemusement that has, we've seen across the EU at the latest British government move, and that's not you know that's not confined to the EU. We see it in the, uh, we see it in the United States as well. I think there is a danger that all this combines into a feeling at at EU level that you know if the British government doesn't change tack or doesn't signal some flexibility on uh, setting aside the provisions of the withdrawal uh, agreement that. You know, the the mood at the next EU summit in the middle of next month will simply be, well, look, to help them, let them off. I mean, James, in many ways, this is a sort of Groundhog Day experience, isn't it? We've sort of gone back 12 months in time and we're faced with similar, you know, things going on with a, a British government facing a challenge in the House of Parliament to get some legislation through with questions about whether a deal can be done with grumblings from Paris, with emollient noises from Germany. But it's all actually very different because the UK actually leaves the EU at the end of this year. Um, if some agreement doesn't take place before the early November, essentially, that's it, you know, out with a bang. Which, as Pat says, of all the members of the EU, Ireland wants that least. But it may well be that the dynamics across the EU as a whole are quite different. Yeah, I think this is the big question is, where is the kind of Cheshire Hotel break? that allows a kind of deal to be crafted going to come from? And I think that is the difficult question. I mean, you know, if you look across the EU, 
probably the EU leader who Boris Johnson has the best personal relationship is Emmanuel Macron. But the, and the French are the most hard line. So you could see some room there. But I think one of the problems for Macron is that, you know, it is impossible to see a deal on fishing that is good for the French fishing fleet. So if Macron steps in to kind of try and broker a compromise between the UK and the EU, he's going to end up with, you know, with his, with his hands in the fish guts and he might well not want that. And I think this is the difficulty. Who can do the creative diplomacy? And last time round, you know, Leo Varadkar could do that. And because it was, you know, the main sticking point was the Irish border, the rest of the EU was prepared to defer to him. You know, if, if, if Leo Varadkar was happy with the solution, they were happy. This time round, it's a much more complicated negotiation because you've got the interests of 27 countries. And I think that is one of the things that makes this so much harder. And I think, I think if there is going to be a deal, there is, it, I don't think it is going to come out of the Frost-Barnier talks. I think it is going to have to come out of political engagement at the highest level. Can I ask you as well, um, Pat joined you on your Spectator podcast at the weekend, and he made a point about Britain's standing in the world um, and certain expectations of the way British Britain comports itself on the international stage, probably more important than ever at this kind of crucial moment in the in the history of the United Kingdom. We mentioned the noises coming out of the United States. Is there a concern at all, in the particularly in the British establishment and in British business and industry, at what the impact of this kind of behaviour might be? So I think the, the fundamental trade-off of Brexit is to believe that being a smaller, nimbler country ultimately confers greater advantages on you than being part of a slower moving but bigger block. And I think one of the truths of life is that small, nimble countries, in global terms, need the protection of the rules. And so I think I mean, anything that undermines that rules-based order is in the medium to long term problematic for the UK. And I think the question about this episode, in a way, and why I think the kind of the incentives for a deal have been raised, is if there isn't a deal, the UK would have to go down this path, which I think would be would, would cause all sorts of problems for it. Whereas if there isn't a deal, this whole situation is avoided. Pat, I'm looking at the parliamentary process there, and it seems quite likely that if there is to be an effective rebellion, because the Tories have such a large majority, obviously, in the House of Commons, if there's to be a, a sort of a rebellion in the House of Commons, it might take the form of this amendment, which will come up for debate next week, which might actually suit the Boris Johnson and his government, which would effectively give Parliament a veto and would say that this legislation would not actually come into effect unless it came back to Parliament and Parliament said yes to it. And that might, in a way, reverse track with the way things have gone over the last week to the situation which James was suggesting they wanted to put out there, which was this was a break class in terms of emergency um, action. So Michael Gove was actually making quite emollient noises about that last night. So that might be the way to kind of to, to reverse a little bit to a safer safer negotiating position. Yeah, that is if it is the British government's intention to find a way back from this, that that if we do believe that, you know, it realises it has made a mistake in the international reaction and the uh, and the EU reaction to this kind of uh, almost blasé pledge or, or uh, acknowledgement that it would break international law last week. So if it wishes to, to uh, retreat slightly from that position, then there's a number of ways that it can do that. And that, I suppose, um, is, is one of them. I do, however, think that we have, to, we have to bear in mind that I think this deal will be much harder to put together than last year's 
agreement was, which was, as James says correctly, unlocked by that meeting between Leo Varadkar and Boris Johnson on, uh, on, on the Wirral. And that was, despite months and months of, uh, of Irish government figures saying that there, you know, that the, there wouldn't be any bilateral negotiations with the UK. The UK was negotiating with the EU. Michel Barnier was the uh, the chief negotiator and they could go and talk to him. There was constant outreach from uh, from the British government to, uh, uh, to the Irish government to come to some sort of bilateral arrangement because they correctly assessed, as, uh, as you said, Hugh, that uh, if a deal in the border was good enough for the Irish, then it would be good enough for, uh, for the rest of the EU. Um, and, that, and that's what happened when Boris Johnson uh, became uh, prime minister. Uh, he reached out to Leo Varadkar in a much more kind of effective uh, way, I think, than Theresa May had done. The two men developed a personal relationship in the way that certainly wasn't the case between uh, uh, Leo Varadkar and Theresa May. I remember getting uh, one highly entertaining account of a meeting between Theresa May and Leo Varadkar in which Mrs May was gripping the table so tightly uh, in anger that her knuckles were turning white. Whereas, um, you know, the Mr Varadkar and, uh, and Mr Johnson seemed to develop, if not quite a bromance uh, together, then certainly a, a better working relationship that in time produced... Uh, produce this produce this deal uh, that went on to gain wider EU approval. But as James rightly points out, there's a m- many more moving parts in a trade deal, and it's not just the Irish government that has to be kept happy on the border. It's the, you know, the French and Spanish fishermen and the Italian Parmaham and Prosecco producers and so on and so on and so on. And not alone does this deal have to be agreed with 27 uh, member states. It has to be approved by 27 member state parliaments. So I think the idea that, look, you know, this will run down to the wire, the leaders will bang their heads together and uh, get it over the line in the end. Look, maybe that is what will happen. But I think that is a rather simplified view of what actually will be in practice an extraordinarily complex deal if it is uh, if it is to be put together and i think what the negotiation the conclusion and the subsequent fallout that we're seeing of late from last year's deal demonstrates to us is that the eu is possibly better equipped to handle that complexity than the british uh, than the british side is so you know i i i think there's probably dangers for 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 the british government there as well do you think that's true james well, I mean, this is the UK basically hasn't, like any other EU member state, hasn't run its own trade policy for the entirety of its membership of the EU. And so obviously, the EU negotiators are more experienced, they're, they're more across these things. And I think there is another question here, which is it all, and I think this is slightly what this um, British government gambit was designed to address, is that in the, in the event of no deal, the EU holds a lot of the cards, right? Because, you know, how goods flow across the border, you know, how many lorries get inspected at Calais, all of those things, lots of them will be up to the discretion of the EU. And I think what you saw in this, in this, in this gambit was an attempt to try and say, well, there'll be some bad consequence of no deal 
for for the EU side too. And I, and I think that that is part of what the danger is. I think it was an attempt to kind of try and redress some of the balance. But uh, but it, but as you said, it's, it, that's a very dangerous game to play. Mm, yes, indeed, Pat. I think though a lot of the imbalance is actually structural. It's simply got to do with size. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, the EU holds more of the cards, I think, in, in, in the no deal, as James says. The danger, of course, for Ireland in that is that, you know, if if the UK is squeezed by a no deal by the EU, then Ireland may be squeezed on things like the land bridge and uh, and so forth uh, by the UK. And that is the outcome, I think, that is the real horror show for Dublin. Absolutely, profoundly not to be desired. We'll leave it for, for today. Thanks very much indeed to James for joining us today. Also to Pat and our producer, Declan Conlon. If you'd like to support this podcast and the journalism of the Irish Times, please do go to irishtimes.com slash inside and sign up for unlimited access for the introductory price of one euro. And using that particular address allows us to know how many of us subscribers are also listeners to Inside Politics, which is good for the podcast. So that's irishtimes.com slash inside. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're always delighted to hear from you. Just mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 